You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to Prehistories with me, Kim Bidolf. Um, in this podcast, if you haven't listened to it before, we talk about stories. Stories based on archaeological evidence of prehistoric times. And when by prehistory, we're obviously not talking about dinosaurs. Here on the Archaeology Podcast Network, we don't do dinosaurs. We're talking about prehistoric people in societies without writing. And in these societies, how can we bring them to life? They have their own stories. They have many stories that they told um, that we don't know. Can modern writers tell stories about them? Can they reveal something about these people by telling these stories? Or are they just dooms to reflect our own times? Well, if you have been listening up till now, you will know that in the last um, 12, 13 episodes, I've focused on European prehistory, basically because that's what I'm most familiar with. But today, we have moved across the pond to discuss a slice of um, American prehistory. Um, One of the books of Michael and Kathleen O'Neill Gear came into my possession and um, I'm very interested in their representation of um, Native Americans and particularly a time even before stories are that the the oral histories that Native Americans tell and they've written many many books in their first North American series Um, obviously they're very well researched as they are professional archaeologists themselves and they're very well told books So I got hold of The People of the River, uh, which is not the first one. It's, uh, I think, about the fourth or fifth in the series. Um, It's set along the Mississippi at Cahokia in Illinois. And to talk to me about this is my guest, Thomas Emerson, uh, of the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Kim. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for joining me. It's lovely to have you on. And I know we, we had to work out the time difference, didn't we? So, um... <laughs> yeah, it's fine here in late afternoon. What are you? It's uh, very early yeah. in the evening, I guess. And, yeah. No, it's not. No, it's oh, late um, in, late, Yeah, it's in the evening. Yeah, but that's OK. okay. I'm, a, I'm a bit of a night owl, so I'm well, quite happy with that. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much. Now, um, obviously, you've done a lot. You've. Uh, been involved in archaeology in Illinois and many other places for a long time. Um, can you tell me about Cahokia then, and uh, what what was this place, and why is it important to know about? Cahokia is extremely interesting um, in the context of North American archaeology because it's one of these sites that, from the beginning, people have understood that it was tremendously large, but it's almost like archaeologists and the general public didn't want to come to the obvious conclusions that this was a very large, almost urban type center. So most of the research on archaeology in the last hundred years has really kind of downplayed it um, and, and made it actually diminished it in terms of its importance because it didn't fit in with our traditional stories mm. of how culture evolved in the eastern woodlands of the United States. It's often interpreted uh, to be what people call a chiefdom. These are societies with perhaps a hereditary leader that have a few thousand people. And they were well known. Yeah, they were well known in the southeast. 
because when the Spanish and the French came, chiefdom-level societies were in place, and they encountered them and they recorded them historically. So when people looked at Cahokia, which starts at about A.D., 1000 A.D., they, they used those... Cahokia. And I think what's really been turned around in the last 10 to 15 years is the scale of work has been extremely large and we're beginning to realize, or I think we fully realize now, like it doesn't fit the model anymore. Cahokia now is really interpreted as kind of North America's first city. It's, it's in place maybe from about 1000 AD to about 1300 or 1350. AD. We now think that its height, it may have had as many as 40,000 people in this location. It's, it's a massive center that covers um, about five uh, square kilometers. Um, it has hundreds of mounds, uh, mm. you know, many, 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 many hectares of uh, habitation areas and plazas, um, fortifications, um, areas of obviously agriculture. It's, it is really now taking its place kind of on, across with other early urban centers across the world. So, so we're in, we're kind of in the throes of a reinterpretation ourselves. And I, you know, I'm giving you in fact, you know, obviously the absolute truth where <laughs> whereas my, some of my colleagues would disagree with some of my statements and and suggest that well no it's it's really not that complex but I, I think more and more of them are beginning to kind of buy into this yeah. image of yes it really is a complex society yeah. I tell you one of the reasons one of the main objections really is kind of it breaks our idea of cultural evolution yes yeah we have been very locked in the eastern United States about things start out as simple family groups and then they have tribes and then they have yeah. Chiefdoms. And then it kind of ends with European contact. But now we're beginning to realize if we if we stick Cahokia into that system, we have something that goes from these simpler societies to literally an urban society and then back to a tribal level of organization. Yeah. And we just don't like that story. It's not very neat. No. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and that's. You, you know that from European archaeology. Absolutely. I mean, we all have the same stories. <laughs> we and, do. And so. and when, yeah, you're right. And it's I was very familiar with, with that progression um, of societies over here as well. And, and when things don't quite work out, it's, um, it takes, it does take a long while to just, because it's the, it's almost like, um, um, it, it's that, um, uh, it, it challenges what you believe, and and that's yes. very difficult. It's the cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Of yes. uh, you buy into a theory, and then it takes ages right. to actually allow the evidence to tell you otherwise. Yeah, sometimes. Well, anyway. <laughs> well yes, and it it really kind of it leads you down this path of kind of misinterpreting the evidence in front of your face. Yes. Yeah. Because as long as you interpret it in line with the traditional theory. People don't really question you. They don't push you. Yeah. The minute you begin to interpret the evidence as breaking with that story, that yeah. great story, then people are very harsh. I mean, there's really an awful lot of then kind of kickback on this saying, well, wait a minute, you don't really know this, you don't really know that. And you go, 
it's kind of interesting because the wow. level of evidence you have to provide if you deviate from the theory is probably twice as much yeah. as if you accept the theory. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it has been a, an interesting process, but a lot of this has been, because in Illinois, most of our archaeology now is done under what we call uh, the National Historic Preservation Act. So in other words, archaeology, and a lot of this certainly in the UK is also true, it's tied to you know, legal requirements to do archaeology as part of development. And yeah. so our, our organization works extensively with the Illinois Department of Transportation. So when, when these big interstate corridors go in and when new bridges go in, we have an opportunity to do the archaeology in advance of them. Mm. And we've been doing that now at a large scale for about probably 30 years. And really, that's where most of our new information mm. at Cahokia has really come about. It's, it's right. been, I, will, I, won't, I won't say happenstance, but, you know, but in, in effect, it's, it's, it, and what's nice about it is for most of the time when people are working at Cahokia, they were focused on the big mound centers. Yeah. I mean, they went, essentially, it's kind of, they went where they thought the, uh, the high-end items and the most exotic information would be. Mm. What these other kind of projects, they've allowed us to look at, like, the countryside yeah. around Cahokia, places we probably normally would not have looked. And that's what's, that's really kind of in it. So it's happening at a large scale and over a diverse area. And it really begins to, you get then a perspective that you have to understand a site like Cahokia as a regional phenomena. Yeah. It's not just this one location. This one site, no. This dot, you know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the core, just because of how archaeologists organize things, the actual center of what we would call Cahokia actually has, has got three different names. And three different site numbers because of the way we or we organize by county county levels, and so we give them arbitrary numbers. So yeah, so Cahokia is actually Cahokia, the East St. Louis Mound Group, and the St. Louis Mound Group, and uh -huh. it's it's kind of interesting how those little quirks really act kind of in a negative yeah. way to understanding Cahokia. Um, you know, just by the, the average person goes, well, there's three sites here. And you go, no, no, no. This is all part of one massive kind of center. It's like, you know. Just because the modern counties fall. Yeah. Right. It's exactly. split the site up. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, breaking London up into arbitrary abstract segments and saying, well, and then treat them each if they're different. And it's like, yeah. well, they're not different. They're really part of this unified whole. So, so that's where we've been going with a lot of our work. A lot of the things we've also been doing is here at the at the survey is we've been looking at bioarchaeology because one of the kind of the exciting new things is has been uh, new techniques in bioarchaeology yes. that have allowed us to kind of do things like DNA and strontium testing and yes. dietary isotopes and that kind of information. That's has, really interesting. Like, it's really come together to give us an idea about the people. So we've been, yeah. 
I was when reading you're... about your stuff actually, yes, okay. and um, about the stable isotope analysis in particular. About um, for pe- anyone who doesn't know what this is, so you obviously can look at the you look at the carbon isotopes to, to because they're unstable um, and right. they decay over time. But you can also look at the stable isotopes of various different elements in the in the bones and the teeth. Um, right. Things like, as you said, strontium and oxygen um, and nitrogen right. and things like that, which will tell you different things about what people were ingesting. Um, so it'll tell you about food, but because water has particular uh, signatures of strontium and oxygen, depending on where you are, um, you can work out where people were from. And, and it was really some really interesting um, results that you got, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's, you know, we, we kind of, We've complained in the last, I think, 20, 30 years with the increasing, I will say, science approach to archaeology is that we sometimes get a sense it kind of dehumanizes it. It's kind of like it, re- it removes the people from the story because you have all these cool scientific models about how the world works. Yeah. And the people just kind of get in the way because they're so messy. You know? <laughs> I mean, People never do what they're supposed to do. They really don't, no. <laughs> and so when you, so working with the bioarchaeology, we literally, we, we focused on it because we said, well, okay, <clears throat> we know about these massive site plans and, and all these buildings and mounds laid out on these organized grids that mm. tie astronomy. And, you know, it's like, okay, this is clearly a structured place, but what about the people? So we started looking that one of the problems in the American bottom, and that's that's where Cahokia is located. It's a it's a big strip of floodplain across from St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, which is very rich. And so, um, in the American bottom, preservation is very poor. Right. And so the the recovery of skeletal remains is unfortunately not very common. Right. <clears throat> and, but there are some, yeah. and we managed to pull them together. And we started out with a very simple question of like, what's, what's the story about corn? Mm. Corn is this major crop that fuels, you know, basically any kind of larger societies in the eastern woodlands. And so it's, it's kind of a critical factor. And we realized we didn't really understand how it came into use or what the timing was. Mm. We, so right now our data had suggested that corn came in about the time of Christ. Right. But coke is a thousand years later, yeah. so so we want to go like so. Okay, are these are these people full time farmers? What are they doing? So we started looking at the diets, and the diet in itself was interesting because <clears throat> we looked at people at a thousand A.D. and we actually found people living at Cahokia, <clears throat> excuse me, who were consuming no corn. Really? And you go, wow, strange. What's that mean? Um, yeah. And then we found all different all different variations in terms of percentages of corn. Right. Um, and we didn't expect that at all. Yeah. Gosh. We expected that these people were just full-time farmers and <clears throat> essentially corn is what they, yeah. what they ate. And that's what fueled that society. So then we began to wonder about, <clears throat> you know, well, does this mean that maybe, you know, in this big cluster, we would expect people, <clears throat> to be coming from wow i'm sorry i'm getting kind of hoarse here yeah don't worry <laughs> <clears throat> take your time yep okay um so when we started looking at the thinking about the population numbers at cahokia and we're saying okay there's 30 40 50 000 people it's like well yeah. 
they can't come from here. They can't come from here, and people cannot simply, you know, breed rapidly enough to produce these kind of populations. Yeah. That must mean that people are coming from a, you know, a wide range of places. So our first clue that that was happening was, you know, seeing people who basically weren't eating corn. And we're going, well, we know that Cahokia was surrounded by societies at a, you know, basically a much, much lower level of social and cultural kind of organization that yeah. a lot of these people at 1000 AD outside of Cahokia really we're, we're still hunters and gatherers right. and we're going, well, huh, that's interesting. So maybe some of these people that we are recognizing here, um, as kind of as not are, are actually migrants. Wow. And hunt and, and originally hunter gatherers, or would they continue that right. lifestyle? And that's why they're not eating corn. That's really but, interesting to have the two kind of interacting and, and living right. together. And what, um, well, I'll, I'll, let's see. I'll, one of the things about strontium is that yeah. we need to all realize is <clears throat> that it's it's embedded in the teeth, and your teeth stop growing. Yeah. So essentially, it seals a signature that. Yeah. Is by the time you're probably adolescent, you know that's a permanent signature. Right. And so it's not going to change. Yeah. So so what we're, what we can really tell is these people in the adolescent stage or pre-adolescent stage weren't eating corn right it's possible after they came to Cahokia they were eating corn but it didn't but yeah but we didn't yeah we wouldn't have it we couldn't really trace that okay um, so effectively um well I ah, we could do the carbon I'm sorry I misspoke so actually with the carbon the carbon actually <laughs> does does continue to be added to the skeleton right so we we do actually have that ability, but but the interesting thing is again, it's it's sealed as in your teeth, so you have the teeth, and they give you two different kind of readings. Yes, which is so quite... so we are yeah. yeah yes so you I uh, getting carried away here with my own elegance. That, <laughs> no, it is that, it is wonderful. I'd love uh, I've been talking to people about a really big stabilized type analysis on a lot of our burials. So you may you know because yes. we. Once this became available, we actually realized that there were a, num a couple of people that have traveled long distances to get to, particularly to around Stonehenge, yes. obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But it would, it, I think it's, it's a, as you say, it puts the people back in and it, it gives you yes. something about their lives to know right. that they traveled or what they were eating. It's really well, you know, you have this kind of traditional situation where archaeologists are always looking at you know, it's imported pottery or it's imported yeah. stone tools. Um, but, you know... Did people bring them or were they traded? That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that... Um, so we, I mean, Cahokia, there's certainly evidence at Cahokia that things from foreign places are coming. But, you yeah. know, as you said, the question is, are they simply be traded hand-to-hand -hand, or actually are people literally physically bringing them here? And so... Looking at the bioarchaeology can give you that clue. So we, so we had a all this diet diversity that was showing up at Cahokia yeah. that we didn't expect. Although it, I will say that it goes away after about the mid 1100s, right? And and they become very very dependent upon corn. Yeah. 
So it's a phenomena of the early Cahokia that you get people that aren't actually consuming corn. Which, um, which makes sense, doesn't it? Right. Well, we just sorry, sorry, Thomas. We're going to take a little break now. It's um, and then after the break, I'm going to actually um, precede the book because I know you haven't actually read this book, but I can tell you all about it, <laughs> and you, we can okay. talk about how accurate that sounds to you. Okay. So um, we're okay. just going to take a little break. Uh, you while you can, the lovely listeners can listen to some messages from the Archaeology Podcast Network. Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Hi, welcome back. Um, I'm still here with Thomas Emerson, who is still on the line over there in Illinois. Um, hi, Thomas. So um, now I, I'm going to tell you about this book. And for anyone else who hasn't read it, um, this might be quite useful and you'll decide whether or not you want to read it. So obviously, I must point out that the book was um, written in or it was published in 1992. So there may well be a lot of more recent information that you've been gathering and um, and putting together that um, obviously the authors didn't have access to um, but here, here goes anyway so um, th- one of the main characters is a woman called Nightshade and she um, as a child is thought to be a very powerful shaman so she's kidnapped along with a particular power bundle and taken to the sun chief at Kahukia who is called Tharon he um it conti- he he she grows up at uh, Cahokia. Um she goes away for a bit and then come- and is kidnapped again and brought back. Um and the sun chief um throughout all of his life has demanded tribute from all the surrounding villages. Um tribute of corn um mainly. But this story really is set at the end of Cahokia because it's about his downfall. So it's about the um uh, the weather climate change making the crops fail and this is the theory that the gears give for the downfall they have uh, the the surrounding villages have less and less corn to give um Theron starts to send warriors out to make examples of the ones who won't pay and to take the tribute so there's quite a lot of violence in this and eventually it leads to a civil war and the downfall of Kokia. so what do you think thomas about that <laughs> Is that is that um, uh, plausible? Um, I would. It's plausible. I I think that, and and you say really, there's been what almost twenty years of mm. of new information coming in now, and I think that we would not characterize um, Cahokia anymore as kind of this almost like complete hierarchical organization with this all-powerful figure at top at the top okay i mean i i look at those now and think they're they almost you know call you know come back visions of stalinism or hitlerism you know Mm. in terms of and you go these societies are not that rigid Mm. that 
and especially, and I, let, let me kind of expand on that. Yeah. So I, I talked, started talking about this whole idea of, with the strontium. We can tell people are coming from distant places. Yeah. They're coming in, and you have to think how people come together. And I think in general, what we realize is, you know, this is not a family coming to Cahokia. It's kind of almost like kin groups. Mm. Sometimes it might be whole tribal groups of four or 500 people mm. coming to Cahokia. And so Cahokia, instead of being this kind of uniform population with its leaders at the top, from the onset is a place full of factions. Yes. It's, Actually, it's that's, that is part of the book. There's definitely okay. factions who war against each other, and there are supposed to be elders that the Sun Chief um um okay. kind of what's the word um consults but he he uh, right. he ends up refusing to do so <laughs> right so yes yeah. that 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 sounds like they've they have built that in a little bit so okay. that's good yeah and so it, it it is kind of interesting that you have them you know it's a city of villages almost yeah uh, you know think of it in that and they they retain a lot they re while well, they retain some i'm sure self-control and uh but they are part of this bigger Network And so from the beginning, the major, I guess, challenge to Cahokia, if you think of there as being an elite leadership, is how do you build unity mm. out of diversity? Yes. And, you know, you, you want to talk about, you know, something that is uh, a question for our times, huh? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, how do, we, how do we get all these diverse people to actually buy into this concept that we are all one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've argued in, in the past that that was done through the basically deliberate manipulation of a religious cult that essentially was tied to fertility and, uh, you know, and uh, a number of these kind of probably an agriculturally based uh, religion. Mm. And, and I think what we see at thinking about the collapse of Cahokia, one of the things that we see is that 1200 AD, mm. that earlier symbolic system totally collapses right it just goes away yeah. and so earlier on you had temples that were built that contained this kind of female and, and vegetation and fertility symbolism yeah. you had specialized buildings that seemed to be religious buildings you had pottery that we think was a religious pottery mm -hmm. all of these kind of really material things emphasize this whole picture of Cahokia as a unity. Mm. At 1200 AD, they simply are gone. And there's also a massive depopulation right. of Cahokia yeah. at, that also happens. Um, we thought in the past there was this decline, but we just did excavations um, at the East St. Louis group, mm. and we excavated about 40 acres there. Um, we dug something like 1,300, uh, you know, habitation structures. Mm. And that's like 4% <laughs> of this wow. major village. I mean, major, I would, it's not a major village. It's part of this basically city. Yeah. And in that section that we dug, you had this massive jump of population from 1,000 up to 1,200. At 1,200, a, a, or a place that we estimate had, 11 to 14,000 people in it mm. drops to about 300. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's just abandoned. Yeah. And we've seen the decline in other places, but, but never so dramatic. 
And so you really can, I mean, it, I, I'm thinking more and more, it is this kind of, it's like a, you know, a shift in ideology. Yeah. And that shift involves people abandoning Cahokia, simply leaving, and this whole transformation of the material culture. Mm. You know, it's like one day you woke up and Christianity had simply gone away. All the symbols are gone. The buildings are wow. abandoned. Um, something very, very different. Um, and I think my colleague and I actually just did a, a recent paper thinking about the collapse of Cahokia. And, and, and we did. A, we, look, we looked at this issue of climate. And, you know, one of the things that I think about climate is you don't realize how resilient these major floodplains are. Mm. So up the upland areas are, are pretty dramatically affected by the Little Ice Age. Yeah. And, you know, and because there's a big drop in uh, precipitation. Mm. But, the, but the floodplain, it's, it's, think of it like the Nile Valley. It, it literally probably floods almost every year in some place. Mm. And you've got this rich alluvial soil, and you've got a water table that sometimes is only a foot or two into the ground. Hmm. Um, and so you would have to have something pretty dramatic in terms of climate. Now, there's, there's just been a new, a new study out that, that argued there was a massive flood that wiped out Cahokia. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't say more than say it's flawed. <laughs> uh, okay. And it, it has to do with... Um, how you date these events mm -hmm. and what they, they're dating really is well sometime between 1100 and 1300 there was a big flood and it's like yeah okay uh, yeah <laughs> that's a 200 year span yes so so we looked at we didn't see that it would actually the, the effects would be that dramatic yeah. but when when we, when we did the bioarchaeology study one of the things that we were very interested in was if this was happening, because we were we were curious about the effect of you know declining foodstuffs and all these kind of things, um, but what we found was that the health of the people never changed right. throughout this entire sequence. Yeah. There is no kind of suddenly well people are malnourished right. and people don't. It's like it it never happens. Ah. So people at the end of the sequence are as healthy as at the beginning of the sequence. Yeah. So that, that to me really began to, and you know, other people have, they probably raised the issue too of deforestation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, well, okay, that is an issue, but we were able to do some wood studies and find out that at the end of the sequence, there were still major, major forests in the American bottom by these, by the, this city. Yeah. So it's, it's like these, these kind of, answers these environmental answers that always look so neat you go yeah like well you have to understand how cursed resilient people are <laughs> yes i mean people are very clever and and people you know have workarounds i mean they're across the river from massive forests yeah. and so it's like you could get you could keep supplying all these kind of things but as we looked at this kind of taking part of Cahokia, the one thing that we thought is, you know, if you go back to our original story that this is, this was a unique cluster of people yeah. from diverse backgrounds yeah. who bought into an idea. And the idea seems to have collapsed. Right. And so we, we did, I mean, you, you could phrase it as a civil war, or um, you could just phrase it as, you know, 
people simply didn't buy in anymore and they simply left. And, and there doesn't seem, the other thing from the bioarchaeology I need to pre point out is like, you would think at a place like Cahokia and some of the violence we do see in terms of these human sacrifice is that, well, this must have been a very violent place. Mm -hmm. The skeletons we have almost have no sign of well, Trauma. that is a very interesting... Uh, yeah, we'll talk a, a bit more about that later, I think, um, because there's there are some um, studies about that in Europe too. Um, but I wanted to read you an extract from the book now. So um, okay. so we've actually had a pre of it, um, but here is when Nightshade is taken back to Cahokia. And um, so she's she spent her childhood years there and she's going back um, and she's going up well, um, the main mound, which I guess is the is Monk Mound now, um, Monks, Monk's Monks Mound, yeah. um, uh, where she will um, come face to face with the um, the Sun Chief again. Anyway, so as okay, uh, okay, as they ascended, the magnificence of the city emerged. One hundred and twenty mounds rose from the flat river bottom, speckling the land like gigantic anthills. Wide plazas and small thatched roof houses filled the spaces in between, interrupted only by the winding traces of creeks and the glistening dots of ponds. Everywhere fires glowed. They passed the first entrance and Badger Tail, who was her kidnapper, glanced at the small temple on the southwest corner. The structure rested on a platform and from the centre a man could look out over the city at morning or at night and tell what day of the cycle it was the entire Cahokia complex had been laid out as a 365-day calendar. So, you've, you've told us a lot. I mean, it does chime well with what you said about, the, the, about Cahokia. Um, it was a planned city, wasn't it, from the start? Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, there, there are so many of these kind of self-evident things that I don't think they kind of register with people. And so... Hmm. So one of the interesting things about Cahokia is it it comes out of nowhere yeah. and it's laid out and it's laid out at a scale that had never been seen before in North America. Mm. Wow. I mean, this place is huge and it that's part of the original mm. planning. I mean, when they lay it out, they're, they're in effect laying out this kind of massive plaza, all these mounds along the edge, this, this big mound, Monk's Mound, which ultimately will be the largest in North America. Yeah. Uh, and you go, Wow, can you understand the the kind of they get a get a sense of like what a shift that yes. is if you if you come from societies that you've never seen more more than two or three hundred people in one place. I mean that's what they're surrounded yeah. by. They're surrounded by little villages, and then somebody can essentially has this vision and they lay it out. But I mean, is I it? But it was it was it a vision? Mustn't it have been that someone had seen something similar and brought the idea? Don't you think? I mean, I know that sounds a little bit Torheyadal. Oh. Sorry, it does sound a bit weird. But um, <laughs> but isn't that how ideas are made? I, that, you know, to actually yeah. see something like that. And there were cultures right. in Mesoamerica right. that had similar yeah. things going on yes. at the time. Yes, and I guess when I say vision, I, I guess I'm not thinking about like vision quest. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'll say foresight, you know, or that, yeah. or that you know, they have this picture in their mind of what yeah. they're going to create, um, and that is something right now that we have no evidence about. You know, where does it come from? Yeah. 
And you just try to think through yourself about like, well, we know that there are Mesoamerican societies yeah. that essentially there are places like Teotihuacan obviously yes. have been in, in place for, you know, 1500 years. I mean, um, yeah. But I tell you, as a North, as a North, as a North American archaeologist, if you tried to basically lay out a, an actual, you know, scholarly argument for this is this is planning coming from Mesoamerica, is yeah. you probably need to start looking for another job. <laughs> really, um, it's just, it is just not accepted. It it is this kind of Thor hired all kind of thing. It's like no. It, it cannot be, but because one of the other mantras, besides this kind of evolutionary yeah. sequence, is we have we have in the last maybe 50, 60 years, it has been truth that the development in Eastern North America, it is internal development, yeah. and yeah, we're next to Mexico, but it really doesn't have any effect. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it really is. It's almost it is kind but of. Being very blind, yeah. actually. It doesn't call. call uh, sorry, but, if I'm if I'm laying your yeah. your uh, career on the line here, but uh, is <laughs> isn't corn actually um, first um, domesticated in Mesoamerica and, and sent northwards as well? Yes, yes, it is, and it we know that it. You know, corn is a couple thousand year history in Mesoamerica before it ever comes into the eastern woodlands. Mm. And it comes actually into the southwestern America yeah. much earlier. I mean, so it's there. And as a side study, when we were doing, um, well, since we're looking at this kind of introduction of corn, the history of corn, we did a, a series of studies. And we went back to some of the early samples that had been dated at 2000, uh, I'm sorry, at the time of Christ, yeah. that were the evidence for this early introduction into the Illinois area. And unfortunately, going back and doing some um, isotope studies, we realized they weren't corn. Hmm. They were misidentified. So so the date is correct, but they're not corn. There should be an article coming out very soon in one of our our national saying, essentially, that evidence for corn at zero is about, is basically, it's not valid. And then we start. We started looking at. We did things like we went and looked at dogs, at from the period of about 600 yeah. A.D. to 1000 A.D. Yeah. Because basically, you know, if, if you if you're a dog lover and a, a dog owner like I am, <laughs> uh, you know, there are they will eat anything they can get their hands on, <laughs> and so, so so they're very interesting because they're kind of this kind of unbiased, you know, machine that eats. <laughs> Whatever is available. Yeah. So these village, these village dogs, if there's corn, they will be yeah. eating it. They, they don't, they don't show any evidence of corn whatsoever. Wow. And that's right up, that's right up to about 800 to 900 AD. Then at about 900 AD, dogs begin to show up having corn in their diet. People show up as having corn in their. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you could, you could make this even more, yeah. more of a story with you know. I mean, basically, corn comes to yeah. Cahokia about a hundred years before Cahokia explodes. Yeah. You know, That's it's, an interesting it, link, it, isn't it? <laughs> Causative or, or just yeah, correlation? It, it really yeah, is. <laughs> yeah, and then of course it it also you know it explodes in a very patterned, organized way. I mean, I think that you know the author's description of you know if you stood at Cahokia and looked around you is is right, spot on, really. 
it it and they the interesting thing is the new work at Cahokia and some other sites have shown that um, the basically the alignment of the moon is probably more important than the sun oh, at Cahokia. Right. Only in, yeah. yeah, only in the last probably five years have people begin to realize, wait a minute, these are it's that lunar standstill issue. And I know these kind of same things show up with the you know Yeah, the, a little bit. Let's the stone I think the moon is becoming more, yeah, it's more accepted. Let's take a little break again, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back and um, some of the other issues that come out of the out of this book. So um, listen to these messages. We'll be back in a minute. Hosted by archaeologist Emily Long, Trial Tales is an archaeology podcast with stories told by archaeologists about the crazy world of archaeology. Emily weaves a tale of wonder and excitement with her intriguing questions and imaginative editing skills. Check out Trial Tales today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash trial tales. Now let's get back to the show. Hello again. Um, so, Thomas, you were talking a bit about the this before I, I rudely cut you off for a break. Uh, you were talking about the um, the links with the moon at with the layout of Cahokia. Is that right? Right, exactly. Some of the alignments of some of the monumental structures yeah. and, uh, and and mounds actually also have a a lunar alignment as well as. I mean, I don't want to dismiss the solar alignments. They are important and they exist. But there's another set of alignments where people are clearly concerned with lunar alignments. And they have to do with that. Well, it's something like an 18-year cycle. Yes, 18.6. The moon moves back and forth. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's because I, yeah, yeah I'm, it's I'm, at Stonehenge too. And it actually goes back quite a long way to um, uh, an astronomer called Gerald Hawkins who did loads of alignments to stars and various things. Okay. Um, and the station stones are supposed to be aligned on the northernmost and southernmost setting of the moon on this on this um this same cycle so it's amazing isn't it (laughs) yeah and what's interesting about that is the kind of the 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 insights that gives you into the value of current native mythology and how things actually can be lost from the past um and, and and the reason i say that is Almost, uh, well, almost 100%, the, the ethnographic and the ethno-historic mm. accounts of the Spanish mm. and the French and the early English coming in is they talk all about Native societies recognizing the sun. And all these ceremonies focus yeah. on the sun. There's virtually no discussion about ceremonies for the moon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it shows up as a minor character. The, the woman that's in the moon shows up in some. But, but it, it's really, it's almost like it's disappeared from the, from the native lore. Right. Yet, so now more and more, since people started picking this up, yeah. now they realize that, my goodness, many of these big Hopewell um, yeah. alignments actually are all about lunar alignments. Right. You know, again, the sun, but there's also a dominant theme. So it's kind of clear that, you know, pre-contact, that lunar alignments were very important. And they literally were very, very important. I think the 
when I was talking about this earlier, fertility symbolism, that's associated with yeah. the moon. That's a, that's a moon association. Yes. And so, so we're kind of picking up this invisible. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, 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 exactly. This is invisible kind of way of life that yeah. disappeared before the historic mm -hmm. period. So it does, that's the same thing we get involved in with, you know, it's, it's really kind of flabbergast people when you go, there are no historic um, or, or native myths about Cahokia. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically the ethno history mythology mm -hmm. is is dead silent and that is that's another phenomenon you go like wow oh. is that is that striking is or that not? yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean um I, you have uh, in in a in an article that i came across about this which was just after actually i read the book so it was uh, i obviously saw the the name Cahokia and i read it um yeah. you were suggesting that there was something that happened at Cahokia that people just didn't want to remember um in yes. the book there is a lot of human sacrifice a lot of it now you were saying earlier that you don't find a lot of evidence of that on people's bones is that so so right. is that actually a thing or is that just made up well <laughs> it here, here's an interesting twist <laughs> i think I, I just wrote something in fact like it looks to me like you were in much more danger of cahokian violence if you were a cahokian right than if you were non cahokian Okay. That that is like external war doesn't we there's not much evidence right. of it. But it but if you're in the midst of it, you know, I mean we basically have we we did strontium on all the, the sacrificed uh, young women and actually there's also some young men in those yeah. mass burials. Um they're pretty much local. Right. In fact, but but here's something cool. They're local, but their strontium reading is really uniform. So it's like it looks like they're local from some small segment of society right there in the American bottom. Right. But it's, it's got to be a spatially small area because their, their strontium uh, signature is, is so uniform. So it's almost so, like a, a separate group of people who were whose role was to be sacrificed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, or they uh they you know they voted for the wrong fella. <laughs> and uh as part of <laughs> there there's certainly, you know, I, I I think I think you've seen the mound you probably looked at some of the mound seventy two because it's always I mean it is so dramatic that it, it always shows up in every discussion and it is dramatic. We know now too we did radiocarbon dates on that and we've dated it to literally the on the onset of Cahokia. I mean that's that takes place kind of the same day they they lay out Cahokia and start building wow. it. It's not something that comes from later on. It's at the beginning. At the beginning. And uh, sorry, and, have you used um, Bayesian modeling on the carbon test to get those a very fine grained um, kind of uh, sequence? Sorry. Without saying anything rude, <laughs> I. I'm not, I'm not much of a believer in that. It's, it, I think that we, we have a colleague who's kind of pulling that stuff together and working on okay. it. But I, I will say that it's, to me, Bayesian kind of artificially scientizes yeah. what I would say is common sense. Okay. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know that do much about it. Kind of I don't know how it works myself either. Yeah. I've just seen, you know, when when people are reporting on Bayesian modeling yeah. and and getting very, very, you know, date, dates yeah. of a decade in in the fourth fourth yeah. millennium BC, and I yeah. just think, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah, I, it is the current love affair <laughs> of archaeology. <laughs> You know, it is the the latest fad. We love fads. <laughs> we do, and, and it will pass like all things, because <laughs> um, so much the pro- so often the problems with the um, our dating sequences is really poor context, um, and Bayesian doesn't correct for that. Yeah. You know, essentially, it has to kind of treat everything. I mean, it it does. You have to artificially throw things out. And so you can kind of come up. And with what we found also with Cahokia, the sequence is so short that actually the ceramic seriations that go along with the um, the radiocarbon chronology that we yeah. do have are pretty good. I mean, they basically allow us to look at, at you know, I will just say one of the phases we use, which is, you know, 50 years long. But we can we can look at early and late within that 50 years based upon ceramic variation that's, that's so we actually already have something yeah. in place that's better than radiocarbon yes. which is it's got such a uh, yeah. so that's that's been independent yes cool. exactly now that we um, so we we um talked about the sun and the moon and really although there is a sun chief in the book i i don't remember very much being said about the sun or moon and it, the, instead the the religion does seem to be a shamanistic one where people go into trances and um mm-hmm. and commune with spirits and things like that um so it in that way it does seem to draw on more recent native american um culture i guess and and kind of merge it together um there's and there is yeah. no doubt go i'm on. sorry did interrupt I was just going to say that it, there is no doubt that pre-Cahokia, you are coming out of a shamanistic tradition. I mean, we, we have effigies that appear to be shamans, and I've written on, there's a series of figurines at Cahokia that actually appear to be, represent like shamans yeah. in flight or soul capture or, or taking an animal spirit shape. They're there. But, but the interesting thing at Cahokia that you see is um, this building of specific temples at about 1,000, I'm sorry, 1050 AD, that's, or 1050, 11, they begin to get built. And, you know, that is, it's like the first steps in creating an organized priest and priestess, you know, system. And so it is, it does, you, you think they are moving. They're coming from that shamanistic background, but they are moving. But it was the site that I dug that actually recovered uh, uh, Datura for the ah, first time. Ah, that is mentioned, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, and now it's showed up at one other site. And so... So Datura um, you know, is, a, is a plant, is it, that, that induces yes, trance? It's, it's, or, uh, it's called gyp- gypsum yeah. weed. Um, and it's... Yes, it. I mean, it's it's the kind of plant that'll yeah. kill you if you're not careful. But it it is a strong hallucinogen, and so you know we begin to get a sense that 
you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it, but I would I would think that, you know, the use of narcotics there yeah. is pretty... That's the difficulty pretty, with pretty shamanism, difficult. though. It doesn't often leave very many traces, does it? That's what's so, so nice about... Yeah, the, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Hokians, when, when they begin to turn it into yeah. a religion, they begin to make effigies and they begin to make yeah. buildings and they begin to have probably that pottery is associated with... Yeah with it one of the other things we just did some chemical work on residues um just recently actually and and i don't know if you're familiar with black drink i think it's mentioned in the book actually (laughs) so i've only come across it in in the gears book yeah (laughs) okay so it's it's a strong uh caffeinated drink It's, it's made from the holly plant and when again when europeans came into the southeast it was everywhere. I mean, it, and it was used, it's, it's really, I mean, it'll give you the same kind of buzz that way too much yeah. caffeine will give you, but it's not really hallucinogen or anything, but it has a major role in all these kind mm-hmm. of ceremonies. Well, interestingly enough, the same kind of fertility symbolism I'm talking about is actually, it's tied with black drink historically. Right. So you look at Cahokia and go, that's interesting. They have all this kind of agricultural uh, fertility, um, all this kind of symbolic work. You know, I wonder if they've got black drink because it's outside the, na- the native area for the, the, for the plant. The plant has to be, those, the uh-huh. leaves of the plant would have to be carried more than three or 400 wow. miles for kids yeah. to have it. And, and we did residue analysis on, and some specialized beakers at Cahokia, they're kind of a mug-like like vessel, and found actually black drink residue in them. So a th- you know, 500 years earlier than we ever knew, black drink is being used at mm-hmm. Cahokia, which again just kind of transforms our understanding about Cahokia itself. And I mean, I think more and more we're beginning to think, you know, it's like Cahokia is to the the eastern woodlands like Teotihuacan is to Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. I, I, won't, I won't say this wrong, but it's it's almost like the mother culture. Right. Cahokia actually brings these things yeah. together at 1000 AD, and they are basically exported as Cahokia falls apart and as Cahokia has influence. Because yeah. where do those people go? Up. Exactly. Yeah, well, I, I think they, they spread all over the eastern yeah. woodlands yeah. probably. A lot of them into the southeast, a lot of them into the plains area. Um, so it's it's a new view. For, yeah, it, it's fascinating. For oh, one of the things that comes up in the book is um, uh, trepanning um, as a as a way to release evil spirits in the in the head. Have you yeah. dug up any any skeletons with trepan skulls? Boy, I tell you, none jump really? into my mind. I mean, I think there are. Um, there might be some few skulls from that time yeah. period. It, it's spread across Illinois, but as something associated with Cahokia, I'm not sure there's any evidence no. whatsoever. It must be just one of those things. It's, uh, I mean, I remember doing, it's a, it's a terrible GCSE. I think they still do, actually. It's a, at 16, one of our exa- um, courses was on the Wild West, and um, the coming of <laughs> Europeans and what happened and uh, and um, right. actually no it wasn't in that in that one it was the history of medicine and talking about the um, the use of trepanning as a way to 
um, to release yep. things. So that, yep. that I think that was one of the reasons I got into archaeology because that fascinated me. So this yep. is obviously, I haven't actually explained what it is for anyone who doesn't know. You drill a whole, um, series of holes in a circle in the head. There's one way to do it anyway. And then saw between those to take out a little circle of bone from the skull, which people can survive amazingly. Um, and and it's been, it, you see it on some um, skeletons from Europe as well. Uh, and it was attested to in those early European uh, descriptions of, of Native Americans and others as well. So um, right. it's just one of those things that's co- it, obviously slipped into the book. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it does show up in yeah. North America. But it, uh, you know, as a trade, it's, it would yeah. be rare. So that's, that's interesting. They had actually find it which kind of um, there's so. so many things i want to talk to oh. you about but um <laughs> we've we just we're running out of time but so i want to i want to jump to the to the last issue and this is that um we've kind of skirted around it a little bit and it's about that you we started off by talking about how it, there's a lot of resistance in thinking about kokia as a city and a planned city with uh you know with all of the traits to do with an advanced civilization um, and there's also the issue that um, that uh, Michael and Kathleen O'Neill Gear are European archaeologists. You know, they're of European descent um, in America, writing these books about Native Americans, um, and and you know, many of them. To, well, they're all based on archaeology as opposed to the oral histories. So, what is the um, what is the ethics around that? Um, and a and a do you think that it's it's uh something that they should do is it their place to do this or is is there an agenda do you think behind i mean obviously you haven't read the book so you can't see really how they've been represented but i just wanted to to get your your view on this um yeah it has become a kind of a current fad to essentially take positions like you have to yeah. be one to say anything yeah. about something. And as an anthropologist, of course, I totally disagree with it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I believe that, you know, diversity of opinions and contributions are a significant way that we move forward and we learn more. Um, I don't see it having any kind of, you know, appropriation, of, inappropriate appropriation yeah. of, of somebody else's culture. Um, they Native Americans are free to write about their culture as much as they want. I think that I would say that the authors in these kind of books, they they actually bring a very important kind of thing to a wider audience, which is just their simple description. Let's mm-hmm. say of what did Cahokia look like? I mean, I think that's that's a fairly it's a good mm-hmm. description. It brings it and it gives people a new vision of Cahokia. So, yeah, I'm I'm not bothered by yeah. that at all. Um, you know, I know that there's been a big conflict in the Southeast because archaeologists realized that intense, I'm sorry, Southwest, there's been, in, there was intense warfare and cannibalism yeah. in some of this time period. And there was a, a very strong outcry to prevent them from publishing their information because it was seen as disrespectful yes. to, to current societies. I, I don't see that. I mean, it, it, is, it is fact. I mean, that, the evidence is pretty straightforward, and it is what it is. 
I, I will also say that, you know, one of the things we, we strive against all the time, I think, is even as archaeologists, is a tendency to romanticize the past. And I think that does more disservice. Um, you know, I, I view the native people who lived here as, yes. as people. <laughs> they, they have the same kind of attributes that people all over the world. They, they, they were good yeah. and there was bad and there was difference. And, and that's how we need to understand them. You know, as real humans dealing with a whole series of problems and issues, and and this is the kind of way yeah. they cope with them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's very fraught, isn't it? The the whole subject, it can, or it can be become very yes. fraught. Well, yes. it seems like a bit of a downer to to um <laughs> to actually uh, finish on that. So I, I just wanted to ask, do you think you're going to read this book now? I, I actually, I will. I will say that it's been on my list for some time actually to read. It's just like, uh, you know, the pile is oh, so high. Yeah. But yes, I think I will actually. Um, I, I, know, I know you haven't you know, had chats really recently, um, so, but I do recommend it. I think it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And obviously then you know, we'll have to talk again about your thoughts about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, put me down as a future reader. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Thomas Emerson, for joining me today. Um, and I'm glad that we managed to sort out the time difference and the fact that I yep. don't know anything about archaeology in America and you hadn't read the book. So <laughs> I think we've done quite well, actually. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Thank you very thank much. You. So I hope you've enjoyed it as well dear listeners um and uh, if you can't wait for the next episode of prehistories obviously there are 13 others that you can listen to and Archaeolo the archaeology podcast network is growing exponentially and there is so much to go and listen to um there as well about archaeology um on both sides of the pond and you know the rest of the world there is a whole big world out there too um, for the next podcast, if you want to keep on listening, I am hoping to talk to um, some Mesolithic archaeologists in Europe. I'm going. I'm coming back to Europe again because that's how, where I feel, you know, happiest. And we're going to talk about a graphic novel that everybody's been talking about. Everybody who is a Mesolithic archaeologist, anyway, called Mesolith. So I'm looking forward to finding someone who's going to talk to me about that. So um, look out for that podcast. presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims.